This is an ABC podcast. A free-for-all hellscape. Yes, this week on Download This Show, the ultra-rich man behind Tesla electric cars and SpaceX, Elon Musk assumes control of the social media platform Twitter with a promise that it can't be a free-for-all hellscape. His words, not mine, which aside from being an astonishingly low bar, the question is, is he really the man to deliver on such a promise? Plus, Facebook may be about to play an elaborate game of chicken with Canada and New Zealand and... The Medibank hack of user data is far, far worse than was initially reported. So what does that mean for customers? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, Manal Asharif from the Tech for Evil podcast and cybersecurity expert extraordinaire. I'm going to go with extraordinaire. Welcome back to the show. And joining us uh, from a studio elsewhere, Michael Cowling, Associate Professor in ICT at Central Queensland University, or as he's better known to friends and family, Professor Tech. Welcome back to Download This Show. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. And all hail our new musky overlord is uh, not a phrase, uh, not a commonly used phrase. And as I said, out loud, I knew exactly why. Um, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has now been completed, Michael, and the question now becomes, what is he going to do with this thing? It's been such a saga to get us to this point. He walked into the front door of, uh, of Twitter's New York HQ with a sink. We're going to talk about the practicalities of what he's actually going to do, but what was the point of that, Michael? Do you know? <laughs> Well, what's the point of a lot of what Elon Musk does? I'm not entirely sure. I think the idea was he's he's, he's ready to throw out everything, including the kitchen sink. And, and indeed, that's exactly what he did. He walked in and promptly sacked most of the senior executives straight away, walked them out the door, and has now made, started to make some pretty significant changes to the way that Twitter works, which is very much what he said he was going to do way back at the beginning of the saga, right? He wanted to buy Twitter to make it less of a, a moderated place more of a free-for-all for everybody. And I think he started to say, well, this is what I'm going to do. Now that you've kind of forced me to buy it, this is what I'm going to do. I want to talk about what the changes are going to be for users, but but let's just start with those firings. Manal, why would he have fired? We're talking about the CEO, the CFO, like why take them out in the first place? He was in disagreement and especially with the, with interesting, the chief policy officer, he fired him. His name is um, Vijaya Gadi. He actually was the one responsible for suspending Trump account because ah. one of his tweets he mentioned Elon Musk he mentioned that he's welcoming uh, he will welcome Trump back on the on the platform although Twitter, although Trump said I'm going to stick to the social truth or the truth social network which is uh, the Trump's Twitter or version of Twitter. Yeah, Trump's weird, strange alternate universe of, of, of social media. So he, so when Elon Musk, when he bought 9%, you know, you remember in, in April when he announced that he bought 9% of Twitter shares and he asked for a seat at the board, he had lots of disagreements with the CEO and apparently he was thinking of sacking the CEO once he uh, buys Twitter. Twitter now will be removed from the public stock uh, exchange by 8th of November. So fast things happening. But the most important thing, I think what he's going to do is he mentioned that he wants to, to stop being dependent on advertising. 
the first, uh, by the way, the sink, he he referred to it, the first thing he did, he entered the headquarter with the sink, saying, let it sink in. Hopefully it doesn't, it's not a sinking ship. Oh. That's what he said. And he it's changed too many his, competing visual analogies, you know. And he changed his title to Chief Twit mm-hmm. and location to Twitter headquarter. Mm-hmm. So these are the first things he did. But the second thing he did, he tweeted to advertisers. So he backed up from his vision of Twitter to be free for all and subscription model to still dependent on advertisers. So let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the changes that have already kind of come through. Uh, For starters, Michael, I mean, there was this thing called Twitter Blue, which was a sort of subscription service. Uh, But he's already talking about making changes to that, Michael. What what is he going to change? It's going to charge you for it. 20, 20 bucks a month for your blue tick. You might, uh, listeners might know that you, if you're verified on Twitter, you get a little blue tick. That means that you're a, you know, a celebrity or something like that. Previously, you just went through the process to get that and confirmed that you were somebody known. Now he's going to start charging people $20 a month to, did he, to do that. I think he removed that tweet. He deleted that Oh, tweet. did he? It's getting quite hard to keep changing very quickly. Things between (laughs) when we record this and when we go to air, things will likely change forty times over. I mean, one thing, Manal, that I think is worth pointing out. You know, you're right. His first thing that he put out, uh, he did the classic like screenshot your 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 Apple Notes situation, uh, and it was to dear Twitter advertisers. And one of the things that I think is most interesting in this little sort of spiel that he put out to advertisers is that um, Twitter obviously cannot become a free-for-all hellscape uh, where anything could be said with no consequences. Now, that's a really interesting point because Elon Musk, God bless him, uh, has said a number of things over the years that he's probably regretted on Twitter with consequences. He's known to shoot from the hip a little bit, which is a very polite way of putting it. What does that version look like? Because on the one hand, he's obviously been advocating for you know a certain idea of free speech. On the other hand, we know that advertisers view Twitter as high risk because you might have advertising around content that you don't necessarily want to be around. True. So there's a bit of a messaging, there's a bit of messaging that he's putting out there to the people who are ultimately underwrite the future of Twitter. But has he, have we got any clarity over what his actual plans are going to be to be not a hellscape but still fit within his definition of free he speech. He tweeted about it and he said that Twitter will be forming a content moderation con- con- council with widely diverse viewpoints. So he did tweet about it. He's, so apparently he's changing how the content on Twitter has been moderated and he doesn't want one person to uh, call the shots. He wants actually a committee sit down and say if this content is hate speech, is misinformation, and it should be moderated or not. So he has he has a lot of ideas how he's going to... But one of the things that people are missing is in the, in the saga, in the last six-month saga with Twitter, lots of Twitter employees quit. And there is, a, there is statistics that was very concerning. It says here 60... Per, there's, uh, he wants to cut 75% of staff. That's the rumor. But actually, 530 employees left Twitter when this saga, that's about 60% increase in the number of workers leaving this company and going to other Silicon Valley companies like Google and Meta. And on top of that, we're also seeing like fairly high profile users as well. Like I noticed like Shonda Rhimes who famously created like Grey's Anatomy was like, I'm not sticking around to see what Elon Musk does. I mean, is there a sense, um, Manal, that, that this is obviously, I mean, it is clearly a turning point, right, in the life of Twitter. But there's so many unknowns, right? I mean, the, the content moderation 
uh, group that you mentioned earlier, that he's saying they won't make any major decisions until that group is convened. But it's very hard to get a gauge on on what that group is going to consist of and what their kind of powers are going to be, right, Manal? And It's lots of ambiguities, lots of uncertainty. Uh, I know that uh, one of his biggest advise, uh, ad- uh, advertiser just pulled out. It was, uh, I think it's uh, General Motors. And GM are known to be one of Tesla's competitors. They just said, we don't know what's going to happen. We, there are a lot of uncertainties. We do want to be uh, fueling a platform that could push for hate and misinformation. So it's very like employees leaving, executive being uh, sacked and advertisers are not not sure what's happening. Yeah. And look, the other thing that's probably worth pointing out is almost the moment uh, he he kind of took over officially, Michael, um, people would just tweet Elon Musk with their like, can you change this? Can you change that? Can you change this function? Out of all of that, what, what do we think he's likely to do then? Because it's not like he, I wouldn't ordinarily like advocate for like wild speculation, but because Elon Musk has a tendency to like tweet everything that comes into his head is the vibe. Um, We do have some sense of where he stands on some issues, Michael. So is there a sense beyond what we've already discussed of other things he's likely to change in the short term? I think that I think ultimately it does come down to trying to find a model for Twitter that actually makes some money, which is an interesting argument for Elon Musk to make, of course, because he's not short of a, a dollar, right? But uh, but Twitter has been a little bit confused in terms of the way that it actually makes money. And one of the things that they did is they actually changed their super follower function to subscriptions recently. And, and, and I think that that goes to what Manal was saying earlier, this idea that uh, you will subscribe to Twitter in the future, that there's a, a way that Twitter will actually uh, will make money as opposed to um, as opposed to the advertising oh. that we had. Uh, but yes, Elon Musk is very reactive to tweets. He's very, a lot of comments on Twitter and, and very reactive to fans. And so I think it is very up in the air as to what he'll actually do in future, apart from trying to sort of... Um, I don't know, Michael, did you hear about AppX, the super app he wanted to create? Oh, app! I forgot about app. What has he actually said about AppX? It's very hard to keep track of everything he said. Apparently he wants to to, um, upgrade Twitter to be AppX. And AppX or the super app is like WeChat in China, where you can do, you know, ride share. Uh, You can buy, you can have your food delivery. You can can do bank transactions and pay your bills. Mm. Apparently that's what he's heading to. So, yeah, so it's probably worth putting some context around that. Like, um, yes, as you say, WeChat and some of these mega social media apps, in, particularly in China, they, they do a lot more than one thing. They, you can, as you say, you can get your rideshare apps, you can pay for things. And we don't, I mean, short of, I guess, in some ways Uber has, you know, given Uber's different kind of imprints, it does allow some of those things. But the idea of it all being centralised through one app, it's not something we've necessarily seen in Western social media apps. I do wonder whether it would take off. I do wonder if the idea of everything being centralised might not track as well, Manab. What do you think? Do you think if, if he tried to turn it into something like that, would the usefulness just overwhelm the, the, the weirdness of having it all in one app? Yeah, it's, if he said he want to make it, he has the money for that. I <laughs> yeah. think he will make it. Do you think an Apex uh, would work like that, Michael? Do you think people in, in, in other parts of the world would would make use of something like that in the same way that so many Chinese users have? 
I think uh, maybe our our culture is a little bit different in terms of putting all of our eggs in one basket. You hear people say that about, uh, you know, trying to diversify the way that they interact on social media. Even these people that are saying, I don't want to be part of Twitter anymore because it's owned by Elon Musk. I want to move across to Signal or Telegram or some other service. Is, is people saying we don't want to put all of our eggs in one basket? So I think this idea that we'll have this Uber app that does uh, everything, AppX, that does everything. I'm, I'm not sure that in Australian society, society and maybe American society, if that's something that people will actually be interested in. But again, let's see. I'm not, I I'm, <laughs> certainly don't have the money and the resources of Elon Musk. So you never know, it might work. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, Manal Asharif from the Tech for Evil podcast and Michael Cowling, uh, Professor Tech from Central Queensland <laughs> University. Uh, you may recall last year when there was a major game of chicken played between uh, Facebook, its parent company, Meta, and the Australian government over whether or not Facebook would end up having to pay for news on its platform. And, of course, in the end it was all resolved. But now that same situation is playing out all around the world. Michael, uh, the Ardern government in New Zealand is playing its own game of chicken with Meta and Google at the moment. What is the story about? So it's uh, in New Zealand and then also in, in Canada as well. Very similar to what happened in Australia. The uh, the government is saying if, if you're using this content, this news content on your social media platform, well, then you need to pay those news providers for that content and we're going to introduce legislation to to make you pay them for that content. And as you said, in Australia that, that happened and famously people may remember that Facebook for uh, several weeks banned and all news content from their platform in sort of protest. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether the New Zealand government has more luck in, uh, in, in sort of enforcing this idea that these news providers should be paid for the content that they produce. I mean, this is presumably what the Facebook and uh, the Googles of the world are worried about. Like one market does it and suddenly all of these other markets around the world are like, oh, okay, maybe we can do the same thing. Is that how they're likely to be viewing this, Manal? Yeah, I think Canada are expecting to have millions of dollars being wealth, the wealth transfer from, because, you know, as a media, uh, as a content creator, all these media outlets were heavily re relied on advertisers. And now when it became digitized, all these advertisers went to the gatekeepers of the internet, Meta and Alpha, Alphabet. Google and Google, they are very open about it. We're an advertising company, but we are the best because we can micro-target. Here you go, all that money. Now the the all these government are trying to protect the re, the people who actually contribute to creating the content. I think Canada they might pull it. I don't know if they pull off that. That would be amazing. Uh, New Zealand, they're only they're talking about it, but there's no um, a bill in the or in the making. But Canada, it's in the making today. Given what happened in Australia, where basically in the end everyone sort of negotiated to save face and news is back on the platform and media companies are being paid, well, not all media companies, I should point out, some media companies are being paid uh, money from the big tech companies. True. Given how that played out, is the, the situation in Canada and the situation in New Zealand and all the other countries that are going to try this on in the next year or so, is it a foregone conclusion that it will play out the same way that it played out here? So Silicon Valley companies with big tech, they have very, they're, they're one of the most powerful lobbyists. They will push back. And that happened here in Australia. They pushed back. They used their power also to twist the arm of the, 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 the bill before it became an act, watered, it, watered that down. 
And that will happen when Facebook just shut down all the government and all the not-for-profit pages on their platform. And they said, oh, it was just a glitch. It was on purpose. So there will be lobbying. There will be a pushback from Meta and Alphabet against any um, laws that will transfer the wealth from them back to the real people who create content for the internet. What do you think, Michael? Is, it, is the situation in Canada and New Zealand a foregone conclusion or are they, their legal setup slightly different that might result in a, in a different outcome? No, look, I think um, Manal is 100% right. I think Facebook and, and, and Alphabet or Facebook and Google, they control a, a lot of that content. And, and I think the, the acknowledgement that the government uses that content almost as much as the private sector does. You know, it has become very common for you to use those things to access uh, government resources as well, it means that they do, to a certain extent, have those uh, those legislators over a barrel. And I think ultimately, I think Canada and New Zealand probably will go in a similar way to Australia because ultimately they can't, uh, if they push too hard, the, the uh, Facebook and Google are going to push back by removing the content and they can't afford for that to happen. I think it, these companies should be treated. They are not the gatekeepers for the internet. They should be treated today as if they are infrastructure. Like in the past, the antitrust laws in the US were enacted because of the railway, the the, uh, the railway monopoly, uh, the the. the the energy companies too, it was the same. I think today these platforms should be treated as infrastructure and it should be, it should not, it should be regulated and it should, it should not be monopolies. We're living in a, in a techno-feudalism with these monopolies that they control what type of information you access and um, it can cut you off the internet if you, we, to know the news, why I need to go to these gatekeepers. Internet, when it was built, it was built on the, concept of having free access to knowledge without someone filtering it through their algorithm to show me what their advertisers want me to see. For me, that's the, the big picture is looking at it, not only the money that's been paid to these media companies, but looking at the big picture, do we still need to treat them as gatekeepers and we go and negotiate? We're really losing that power if we, wanted, if we don't consider them as we consider infrastructure. But that's a big picture, of course. That's way down the road. You said something interesting there earlier, Manal, which is the, the idea that legislation, look, as a natural part of negotiation in general, does tend to get modulated and, and watered down, some would say. Given that, what should what would an idealised version of this arrangement look like, right? Are, are there lessons that the other countries should look at Australia and go, okay, so Australia got this part right, but actually this part we would change? Are there things when you look at where we landed that you're like, if we did it over, we would have structured it slightly differently? For you, is there anything that stands out? I think there were a lot. Uh, there were a few people who gained from that bargaining um, act not everyone, not the small media companies or the independent media companies, local media companies. So we're still just transferring the wealth from monopolies to other monopolies, the big players. I know ABC was one of the people that negotiated, but at least ABC is, a, is an independent um, media company uh, or media organization. My problem is that only the big players had the power to sit down at that table with those gatekeepers and negotiate the small the small media companies and the, the independent one didn't get anything out of that. What do you think, Michael? Are there things that 
uh, about the way we landed in Australia that other nations, the Canada and New Zealands of the world, should look at and go, no, 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 we can do better. I mean, you're striking a balance between not having that strike happen, not having them them withdraw the content. But I'm, I'm just thinking about what Manal just said and thinking maybe there is the, an opportunity for a, for a mandatory payment for anything that is paid, as opposed to what we ended up with in Australia, where each individual company sort of bargained with the social media giants. Maybe these governments should say, well, you know, anything that's shared at any time, here's a minimum payment, something that has to be paid because we recognise that that content belongs to them. And for the small media providers, they don't have the capacity to get involved in that bargaining. So let's just set a numbering and, and say that Facebook has to give that to them. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week, uh, Michael A. Cowling from Central Queensland University and Manal Al-Sharif from the Tech for Evil podcast and also a cybersecurity expert. Mark Finnell is my name and you will have seen the tranche, I'm going to say, of, uh, of data breaches that have happened in the last couple of weeks. We have now learned more about the Medibank hack. Medibank has revealed that all of its 3.9 million customers have had their data exposed to a hacker in a significant escalation of where we thought this was last time we spoke about it. Um, 3.9 million is, is a lot, but does that mean all of their details have been revealed or is there the same sort of situation we had with Optus, Manal, where you know, the, the hackers got, you know, in some cases, just their names and dates. Some cases they, they got all of their passport details. In some cases they've got, uh, you know, your driver's, your, license, driver's yeah. license. So, you know, there was this sort of, um, they had to kind of come back in the case of Optus, they actually kind of had to come back to the customers and go, okay, well, we think you've got this amount of content. We think you've got this amount of data breached. Maybe you do need a new license. With Medibank, I mean, the data available is potentially enormously damaging, but do we know how much of that individual data has now been um, leaked? Uh, apparently, there was a compromise of account for super user, 200 gigabyte of data being leaked. That can, that Actually, that's every single one, every single customer, and that's only the, the current customers of Medibank insurer. The former customer's data also been leaked, that's the big thing. The problem is with the type of data. There's something called sensitive data. So if it includes as a, as a health care insurer, that includes your policies, that includes all your medical procedures, very sensitive things like if someone is being treated for drug addiction or someone being treated for, let's say, STD, sexually transmitted diseases. And they, the hackers in their ransom uh, or in their... Um, blackmailing, I don't call it ransom because this is, uh, this is blackmailing because they're not locking their data. They're actually stole the data and they're bargaining. They mentioned 1,000 users. They're high profile users. They have access to all their sensitive data, actors, politicians, um, LGBT activists, journalists, and they've been threatening to expose these very sensitive data to the public. And that's blackmailing. Mm. So how do we think it's actually going to play out, Michael? What happens next? Well, it's funny because I actually talk to my students about this a lot, uh, this idea of ransomware. Ransomware is where they install something on your machine and they lock your machine. Uh, this is a little bit different. Uh, again, it's, it's about bargaining for the stolen data and whether or not it's going to be revealed. But the question, I mean, to go all Hollywood for you in a, for a minute there, Mark, is do we negotiate with terrorists? Is this what we do? Um, or does Medibank say, no, we're not going to pay you this money? Because, of course, the problem is that if you pay the terrorists 
the money, there's no guarantee that they won't still release the data. And so uh, so Medibank has to make a difficult decision as to whether or not they just uh, consider this gone or whether they, uh, they actually negotiate. And of course, as Manal said, we're talking about sensitive health data here. The difference between this and Optus is the idea that they have all of your health information and there is really sensitive data there. When Michael was saying negotiate with terrorists, you, you shook your head so much, Manal. Is, is that because you think it's a bad idea to, to negotiate with these people? So if you talk to the federal government, they will tell you never pay ransomware. That's the same with the US government, federal government would tell their companies. 43% of Australian companies, according to a, uh, a report by Sophos, which is a cybersecurity company, paid ransomware. And again, I agree with Professor Michael. This is not ransomware. This is actually a blackmailing. They are asking about 35 million Australian dollar uh, in return of not revealing or selling this data to third parties or revealing this information. But you're bargaining with bad actors. And those bad actors, you're, it's always a lose-win. If you pay them, you, they still can reveal that data. If you don't pay them, they will reveal that data. So you're really not winning. It's, it's, here we're just dealing with financial loss, reputational loss, and the impact of all these users, all these people, their sensitive data being exposed or would be, could be exposed. It's just that, like, they are not in a good position, really. The thing I struggle with, particularly with the Medibank case, Michael, is that, you know, with Optus and some of the other hacks recently, I think you can mount an argument that perhaps they didn't need to keep some of the, the data that they, they, they had. And I think that's understandable. But the data that Medibank has, they kind of need on us, as far is my understanding, right? So as a user, if, if you are a Medibank customer, I, I don't see an alternative I, I, other than to just attempt to trust the, the security of these, these companies, which is quite an uneasy position to people, for people to be in, Michael. You can't just suddenly decide not to have these, these, these insurance accounts that you already have, can you? They, they're always going to have this data on you, Right. That's exactly right. And that so that is the difference. Optus uh, may be storing some stuff that they weren't supposed to store. And there's a whole uh, story about data retention there that we could get into, but we won't. Um, Medibank, I mean, they use this data to determine your, your premiums and things. So they do need that sensitive data about your pre-existing conditions. And so it does come down to how secure it is. And I think that's something that's going to be really interesting once we get past all of the bargaining and the negotiation is does the government step in and say to Medibank, you should have secured this data better? Is there a, a punitive component to this later on to say to any provider, not just Medibank, but any provider, you're responsible for making sure your data is secure because this is really sensitive data and it's really affected Australians and we're going to hold you accountable for letting that get out there into the world. So two things for me, if you ask me about this hack. Because you knew I was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that really bothered me so much. Mm. How come 200 gigabytes of data leave your network without raising any alerts? In cybersecurity, there is a saying, there are only two types of organizations in the world. Those who are hacked and they know about it, those who are hacked and they don't know about it. <laughs> bank. They didn't even know about it. So 200 gigabytes were, were, were leaked through their network and they didn't know about it. And because the hacker contacted them twice, not once, twice, saying, hey, these are, these are thousands of accounts. We have this data. 
talk to us. So that was my problem here. The other thing, they didn't have insurance. So cyber insurance help you when you are dealing with this case. But a lot of cyber insurers, they, a lot of companies say, oh, cyber insurance is so expensive, we can't afford it. We better just deal with the hackers when it, the hack happens after the fact. For me, cyber insurer, insurance in Australia is so expensive because the cyber posture of most companies in Australia is really lagging behind the standard worldwide. All right, we are out of time. Manal Al-Sharif, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Mark. Manal Al-Sharif is from the Tech for Evil podcast and a cybersecurity expert, and Michael A. Cowling, Professor Extraordinaire, Associate Professor. Uh, I've shifted the extraordinaire from Manal over to you, Michael, just so you know. Um, <laughs> Professor Tech from Central Queensland University, thank you so much for joining us and download this show. Thanks, Mark. I'll take extraordinary anytime. You're both extraordinary. And with that, I shall leave you. Uh, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show. My name is Mark Fennell, and I will catch you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.